Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of But I Digress, and today I'm really excited um, to host Alan Murray. Alan Murray is the former editor of the Wall Street Journal Digital. He's a pioneer in television business journalism. He was recently head of Pew Research and for several years now the CEO of Fortune and is the author of widely read um, of the widely read daily email newsletter, CEO Daily, which I read even though I'm not a CEO. Um, he also once showed the incredible wisdom of hiring me and for that I'm grateful and I welcome him to this podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be with you, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's a real pleasure. Uh, now, you've written numerous books over several decades, including um, Showdown at Gucci Gulch, Revolt in the Boardroom, and The Unlikely Triumph of Tax Reform. And now you're coming out with Tomorrow's Capitalist, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but the reason I bring all those books up is you know, you've been at Random House, Crown, Harper, uh, and now this book published by Public Affairs, which is an imprint of Hachette. So the, the reason for this long windup, um, aside from the obvious observation that there are a lot fewer traditional U.S. publishers than when you published your first book, how have you seen the publishing industry, the, pu the book publishing industry change? I think the remarkable thing about book publishing is that it, it has remained relatively strong. I think if you went back 10 years ago, we all kind of thought books were going to become museum relics, just something that you would have a few old copies of that you stick on your on your shelves. And in fact, what we know is book reading has gone up over the course of the last decade. Um, um, now, it's never been a uh, it's never been something I do to support myself. <laughs> it hasn't been the most uh, profitable piece of my life, um, but but it's a fun format. And some topics like the one I'm dealing with in Tomorrow's Capitalist need a uh, longer form treatment. So, but in terms of your relationship with, with, with publishers, I mean, talk to me a little bit about why you chose Public Affairs, which is a really cool imprint um, and how that experience is different from uh, what, 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 what you had at, at, at Random House or any of the others. You know, it, it's less about the publisher and more about the editor. The editor of my very first book, Showdown at Gucci Gulch, was, which was about the incredible 1986 tax bill. Uh, the editor was Peter Osnos, who was then at Random House. He went off and started public affairs books. He's not actively involved in public affairs any longer, but but uh, but he was an important part of my uh, doing the book with public affairs. And then John Mahaney, who edited uh, this book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, also edited uh, Revolt in the Boardroom. So so it's uh, you know I have great loyalty to great editors, and I've been fortunate to have a couple. Um, yeah, and. Editors tend to be more loyal to uh, um, to writers than their their publishing houses do. Um, I, I have I have friends who've um, you know con had contracts at you know say well I don't want to say but uh, <laughs> one big publisher and the editor leaves they're still contracted to that publisher and the publisher kinda doesn't want that book anymore but they won't let the writer go. 
So the writer has to fulfill his obligations and the publisher eh, publishes the book and they don't do that much for it. Uh, it kind of sits there and no one's happy. Um, it's not a nurturing business in general, uh, uh, book publishing and book editing, in, in, unless you're a, a really high priced title. You know, if they paid millions of dollars to acquire the title, then they will spend time and attention. But otherwise, it's not a very nurturing business. But I've been lucky. I've been lucky. Uh, uh, Peter Osnos, John Mahaney, uh, great, great editors who I've been fortunate to work with. Well, I mean, Peter Osnos is um, following the footsteps of, you know, some, some really great um, editors and publishers who have this idea um, about what, you know, the importance of books, what books should be about. That's right. Um, but it doesn't. So one of the things I've struggled with all my, my entire career is, is there a more poorly run industry than book publishing? Probably not. Probably not. Or more, uh, I guess the way I would put it is more ripe for transformation. I mean, you're the, such an optimist. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the fascinating thing about the topic I, I'm writing about this time is it evolves daily. I mean, there there's no better example of what's happening in business than the last four weeks when you had 300 companies come out and, and break ties with Russia, not because they were forced to by government sanctions, but because they thought it was the right thing to do. In many cases, because their employees were pressuring them to do it. Um, so, you know, there's a great example that happened just in the last four weeks. You won't find that anywhere in my book, which comes out May 10th, uh, because it was sent to the printers months ago. Yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing about, um, about the book industry, in my mind, is that it seems to be um, a labor of love. Um, masquerading as um, something that's supposed to be profitable um, and or it, not masquerading because I mean uh, or it's a really darn good disguise I mean it it, it has to make money uh, or, or or it will cease to exist um, the not-for-profit model doesn't really seem to work and it seems like there used to be a model um, even before you know I started getting published where you know, a knop would um, would publish, you know, a hundred books in a year, ninety of which were supposed to make money, essentially to support the other ten that weren't supposed to make money, but that were the real raison d'être for the imprint. Um, and I don't know that I don't think that that. Oh, I think it's probably anymore. the other way around now. It's the ten make money and 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 ninety don't I, I don't know enough about the internal economics of the book industry industry i can tell you i don't write books to make money never have i mean right. my my first book showdown at gucci gulch which was uh, published in 1987 is actually my most successful and it became successful because it was adopted by universities many universities political science courses as an introduction uh, to Congress and how Congress works. It was a fun, lively, great characters. And, and so uh, let's see, 1987, how many years has that been? 30, 35 years later, it's still in print. And, 
every year I get a royalty check and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $300. So that's what a, a wildly <laughs> successful book has, has done, done for me. I mean, if you're, if, if you're Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or Donald Trump, uh, the, the, those economics may be different, but for most book writers, uh, you do it because you have something to say and because you feel like you need the, the uh, book length to say it. Right. Well, and I mean, look, I, one of the one of the people on this podcast is uh, previously was Rick Moody, um, whose novel, The Ice Storm, was made into uh, a, a movie. Um, and most people, I think, if you told them, well, um, here's a novelist who wrote a bestseller, who then had a you know, movie come out um, with the biggest stars of the time and the, the hottest director at the time, Ang Lee, and you'd be like, okay, okay, he's got it made, but no, he still has to work to make, because, you know, it takes five years to write a book and <laughs> see it published. And I mean, if you know, <laughs> If you make a million bucks, that's $200,000 a year and that's done. You know, you're done. I mean, the, the ice storm was set up the road here in uh, New Canaan, Connecticut. That's right. I, that's right. I saw that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Rick is an old classmate of mine or I never would have, um, you know, uh, <laughs> landed that one. But uh, no, he's great. He's, he's a real sweet guy. I shouldn't say that. He probably would have done it um, because he's a sweet guy. Um, so... What do you tell people who say, hey, you know, oh, you meet people socially and they, you must hear a lot. People say that they want to write a book. Um, what, what do you tell people to run away? What, what do you tell people? No, I don't tell them to run away. Look, I, I, I enjoy it. I mean, Michael, you know that these days my principal writing is 300 words at the top of a, of a, a, a newsletter. Um, uh, which is about all I have time for in my daily life. Uh, um, I, I just tell people, if you want to write a book, it's got to be a labor of love. It's got to be because you have something to say and, and you think it needs to be said long form. Don't do it for the money. Uh, uh, I, I think that's a, a misguided notion. It's not that there aren't some people out there who've made good money off of their books. It's just that the, it's a bit like buying a lottery ticket. You know, you, you may or you may not. Um, but, but the discipline of, for, for people who've been journalists like you and me, the discipline of, of trying to sit down and figure out uh, how you organize uh, 50, 60, 70,000 words is, is, I find, a really enjoyable mental discipline. It takes time. It takes, it, it, you do have to be disciplined. Uh, someone once said to me, uh, you know, when I asked the question, what's the secret secret of, of book writing, they said, uh, uh, sit down in the chair and start writing, because many people just get so frozen by the, by the size and scope of the project that they never get going. Uh, I, I found that to be really good advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I, I know, I, you know, I'm probably not the only stop on your promotional tour. Um, what other things are you doing to promote the book? How much of that is suggested by your publisher and how much support do they give you? And, and, and sort of how, how has that evolved over the years? Yeah, I, I guess a couple of things. One is I don't have a lot of time. 
Uh, it's the reason why I had a co-author for this book. I mean, I'm I'm running a, a a media company. All media companies, by definition, are struggling. So I'm running a struggling media company, uh, and most of my time is devoted to trying to uh, to. I mean, Fortune has been around uh, for now for uh, uh, 93 years. My goal is to get it to its 100th anniversary and in shape to last for another 100 years. Not an easy thing in today's uh, media environment. So I really devote most of my time to that challenge and, and the writing, uh, the writing has to happen on the side and the promotion has to happen on the side. But to your point, um, the, the, the good news, and this was happening pre-pandemic, is some of the best promotion doesn't require, you don't have to travel, you, don't, you, can, you can do it from home. There are good podcasts, good radio shows that sell books. Um, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm doing as many of those as I can. I get some help from the publisher. Again, and I, I, don't, I love public affairs, but most book writers don't get much support either on the editing side or on the promotion side, yeah. you know, in, uh, unless you're, unless they paid $5 million to acquire your title. And let me be clear, they did not pay me $5 million to acquire this title. No, they don't put that much effort behind it. So you got to do a lot of it, uh, a lot of it yourself. And for me, it's going to be constrained by the amount of time I have to give to it. And do you, do you use social media? I do. Yeah, and I think social media can be important, and it's now on my, uh, you know, uh, every social media post has a has a uh, a promotion for the book. I mean, the other thing, Michael, for me is this book, and part of the reason I decided to do it is very tied to our business. I mean, Fortune has been around uh, for ninety three years, as I said, but it has really become in uh, in the last six or seven years, and, and partly at my insistence, it's become much more of a purpose-driven media organization. We say that we, our intention is to make business better, and we mean that in multiple meanings of that phrase. So, so, so the book is very much aligned with what we are doing as a company, uh, and many of our uh, corporate uh, sponsors, partners across our platforms are people who want to be associated with that message. Yeah, you know, that leads me to the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Because, uh, you know, you've been, um, you've been on this beat um, for a long time, and you're as connected to this beat as I think any reporter um, would want to be. I, I, I've always admired that side of you. Um, but, you know, even though you're behind a desk, um, you're, you're basically out on the street. Um, and your beat happens to, in my view, you know, you beat sort of the global economy and business. Um, and it seems like the impetus for this book reflects, well, it reflects things that I've seen you write in your, in your newsletter for a few years now. But it seems to me that something's changed in your view. Is that, is that yeah. right? Absolutely. And, and look, I think this is a really important part of the book. I, I, I've been a journalist my whole life, uh, literally since I was nine years old. Um, for most of my life, I saw my purpose as explaining the world, not changing the world. I wasn't a crusader. I wasn't out to make things different. I was out to tell people how the world worked. And for most of my career, 
I have been working at and focused on the intersection between business and society. So business, politics, economics. Uh, when I moved to New York for the Wall Street Journal in 2005, Paul Steiger explicitly asked me to focus on that and created a new column for the Wall Street Journal called Business, which I thought was kind of, you know, I said at the time, Paul, how can you, how can you call this column business? I mean, what's the rest of the paper doing <laughs> if, if this is, but, but what he meant was that there are the people who run large organizations have to have a view that encompasses politics, economics, and business. And we had good people who covered each, but not anyone who was integrating the three in the way that the people who run large companies do. So it put me in, an, and, and I also built, as you know, I built out some new franchises for the Wall Street Journal, built out conferences, executive conferences. All of that put me in a position to uh, be having constant conversations with the people who ran these large organizations. And what became clear to me over the course of the last decade was the way they ran those organizations and the way they thought about leading those organizations changed and changed pretty dramatically. It became much less about telling people what to do and much more about inspiring, guiding. You know, I even heard for the first time people start to talk about moral leadership and the importance of moral leadership. I think some of that had to do with the pace of change. Some of it had to do with a new generation of workers that just expected much more out of the companies they worked for. But for a bunch of reasons, which I go into in this book, the, the way they thought about their jobs and the way they did their jobs started to change dramatically. And it was much less about, hey, here's what we're going to do to get the maximum profits to the bottom line, and much more about their purpose in the world, their social footprint, about giving people a sense that they were doing something that was important and something that was good and that, that something that would Im improve society. So I got into this because I saw it happening in front of my eyes. I heard about it every day and I thought, this is, this is important, it's happening fast and it's not going away, but we need to understand it. Uh, and, and that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, someone you, I, I'm, I'm imagining that uh, Mark Benioff appears in your book. Um, right. uh, and Mark Benioff is someone I've known for a long time because I covered Salesforce since they first uh, popped onto the scene. Um, and I've you know, spoken to him numerous times. Um, and he strikes me as somebody who is absolutely sincere uh, in, in, his, in his belief that, um, you know, we should all be and himself included, doing our best for the world. In, in uh, you know, he, he he made it part of his company's you know credo for starters, right? Yeah. Um, but he seems so to many. He seems uh, like an outlier, uh, and um, well, he was an outlier. He was an outlier in the early days, Michael. Uh, um, uh, you know. Let's just take one piece of this story, which is the increasing tendency of companies to speak out on uh, social, political, geopolitical issues when they feel they need to. Um, I, I can tell you 10 years ago, 15 years ago as a journalist, that never happened. I mean, if you called up, uh, if you called up a CEO to ask them about a, a controversy over transgender access to public bathrooms, to take one prominent example that attracted a lot of business comment. 
they would have said, forget it. Are you, are you kidding me? I'm not, they would, they'd be under their desk. Uh, not going to talk about anything that doesn't directly affect my bottom line. I think Mark Benioff, you, he, he was an outlier. He was early. He was the one who first said when uh, the state of Indiana passed a religious liberties law that was widely viewed as discriminating against homosexuals, he was the first one to say, we're not doing business in that state. Um, that was, what, 2015, so not that long ago. Then there was the uh, example that I pointed to, uh, the state of North Carolina passed a law that, that said uh, uh, that limited transgender access to public bathrooms. You had to go to the public bathroom that was aligned with your, your sex at birth. Um, and a bunch of businesses spoke out about that and eventually Bank of America, which you don't think of as an outlier, right? As a liberal, uh, as a woke institution. This is right. the biggest employer in the state of, of North Carolina. Bank of America jumped on board and said, this is wrong. You can't do this. In, in Georgia, after the Parkland shootings, uh, Delta Airlines, again, solid Southern conservative company said, you know what? No, we're not going to give uh, uh, the traditional benefit that we've given to people going to the NRA conference anymore. Uh, even though the majority of the legislators in the state of Georgia were members of the NRA. So you, you started to see this snowball. There, there was a big push in, in the early days of the Trump administration when uh, Ken Frazier of Merck, uh, after the Charlottesville riots and, and Trump's uh, equivocating comments said, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm out. And a whole bunch of companies followed him out. So we're not gonna work with this. It, it, we're not gonna be on the councils of this administration. Um, uh, and then it culminated in 2019 with this extraordinary statement from the Business Roundtable saying, we agree, you know, we're in a, we're in a world of stakeholder capitalism. B businesses have to pay attention to their employees. They have to pay attention to the communities they operate in. They have to pay attention to the natural environment. Uh, and it mentioned all those things before it said, and yes, also their shareholders. So uh, so it, Benioff may have been an outlier in the early days, but I think that business roundtable statement made it mainstream. And then COVID hit. And if anything, COVID made it more mainstream. Uh, so it's it's become, I wouldn't say it's uh, all companies by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but among the Fortune 500, I'm sure it's at least half or more. I know, in fact, I know from our surveys, it's it's significantly more than half uh, have have said um, uh, we have to pay attention to multiple stakeholders, and we and, and suggested that in the past they were overly attentive to just shareholders. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that um, I, I felt until about a month ago like we were. Um, we were uh, sort of coming out of the pandemic in a, in, and there was a, a, a greater sense of global community. Yeah. Um, and uh, since the advent of the war, it feels like now there's greater talk about less globalization. Um, and uh, I, I feel like we're, you know, one of the benefits of commerce is, you know, if you're a trading partner, you're less likely to go to war. Um, and, and that was, yes, a, there, Michael, that was a theoretical benefit. How so? Well, 
we talked about that a lot in the 1990s, you know, two two countries that both have a McDonald's are not going to go to war with each other. But since then, they have many times. And we're, we're in the middle of one right now. Right. So I, I think that was a, a a benefit in theory that is has been less proven in fact. But 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 the other thing, these changes that I'm talking about that are driven by employees and to some extent by consumers and investors are changes in companies based in the West, U.S. companies, European companies. Um, when you look at China, which, by the way, now has more companies on the Fortune Global 500 list than the U.S. does, when you look at China, stakeholder capitalism means something entirely different. There's only one stakeholder who matters, and we all know who that stakeholder is. Um, and, and so uh, I, I do think this move by corporations to take more responsibility for geopolitics for social issues like inequality, diversity, and so forth, is contributing to the bifurcation of the world order. Coming back to our knitting, which is, uh, which is books, what, what is there, is there something that you've learned about book publishing over the years that you wish you'd known, or that you would tell someone that's just getting started? Um, I wouldn't say I didn't know this, but, uh, Attention spans get shorter with each passing year. Even though people are reading more books, the truth is we have so many distractions in our lives. Keeping people's attention has become so important and so difficult. And, and so what I would say to anybody uh, writing a book is th think about the narrative. Uh, you know, you, you, whatever kind of book you're writing, you need a story to pull people through. You, you, you need characters, you need progression, you need a, a, a sense of, of uh, internal tension and a, and a sense of climax because uh, without great storytelling, nobody's gonna stay with you to the end. I, I mean, that's, that's not new, by the way, Michael. I remember there was a, uh, uh, years ago, Strobe Talbot, a name you know, wrote a book about nuclear arms control and Michael Kinsley, who was a, a, a devilish uh, journalist, did a little experiment where he went into about 25 bookstores and he stuck a little note on page, I don't know, 100 and something saying, if you get this far in this book, call me and I'll, and I'll send you $25. Uh, and he didn't get any calls. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, I, I just think you have to realize if, you, if you're going to write a book that the that the burden is on you to grab people by the by the collar and pull them through it uh, because it's just hard to keep people's attention. We have trained people to have very uh, fractionated attention. The, the irony is that um, we we try to many of us try to practice mindfulness, but we we only do it in like five minute increments because that's what we have time for. <laughs> Brief mindfulness, right? <laughs> So um, there are two questions I ask at the, uh, of all my, my guests at the end. Um, one of them is, what is your physical relationship to books? I mean, do you dog ear? Do you highlight? Do you write in the margins? Are they like sacred objects? What's, how, do you, how do you treat books? Oh, definitely sacred objects. I mean, I, I have, I've finally reached a point in life where I just 
I no longer have any place to put them. I mean, I've got this whole wall of bookshelves. Every room in our house has bookshelves. And I've had to, I've had to change my approach because I just have nowhere to, to put them all. So I've, I've started ex except in very rare cases, only reading books digitally. So, uh -huh. so they don't add to the clutter. And if I keep one, I keep it because it's signed or it's important, or I actually think I may uh, read it someday. I, I, I definitely mark them up right all over them. That's just part of my habit. Oh, you um, do? Oh, I do. And, and I have a lot of old books. I, I've, I've always, books have always been, I mean, there was a time in my life when books were the only thing I owned. I had a Toyota station wagon. And if I moved, I just took the boxes of books and threw them in the back of the station wagon and went to the next place. So it, I have a, 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 a very special relationship with books. And my wife does too. We have books piled up all over the place. We just have to go on massive purges every six months or so now. And, you know, the, the, that are now that our children are grown up. I mean, we have a house that's far bigger than we need, but we can't imagine downsizing because we'd have to get rid of so many books. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's funny because you, you, they're, they're sacred objects, but they're sacred objects that you venerate by desecrating them with, with your scribbles. Which is fine. I mean, well, I, I consider my scribbles to be sacred too, Michael. So it good. Was... <laughs> good on you. <laughs> Do you dog ear? I dog ear. Yeah. No, okay. See, I, I can't do it. Even with a paperback, I use uh, I use uh, bookmarks. I just can't. No, I'm not terribly respectful. Um, and then the last question I have for you, if if you hadn't, couldn't have become a writer or a reporter, what would your dream vocation have been? You know, I, I can't, I, I, this, this bothers me. I cannot answer that question. I literally became a journalist when I was nine years old. I started walking up and down the street where I lived and sort of had taking, taking notes. I don't know if I had a reporter's notebook, but I had something like a reporter's notebook and people would tell me about their dog that ran away or they won the swim meet or the grandmother was visiting and I would take it back. And my poor mother, uh, I, I have the typewriter she used right here next to me. My poor mother would type the whole thing up on <laughs> using a special carbon paper. This is before the days of Xerox machines or you know any place you could go to easily uh, copy it. So I had a jelly sheet copying machine and my mother would type it up on special carbon paper. And then I, you know, put the master down on the jelly sheet and I could run off 30 copies and I'd, I'd uh, sell it around the neighborhood for a nickel. So I was doing this before I was old enough to think about it. You weren't even just a reporter, you were a publisher. I was a publisher. Yes. I, 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 you know, I, I, I met someone. Uh, I, so I had 30 copies because if I wanted to go more than 30, if I wanted to sell more than 30 copies, I had to make my mother type it a second time. And that was just more than I could. So the labor cost was exorbitant. The labor cost was exorbitant in many ways. Uh, but, you know, I, I met somebody a couple of years ago who is uh, uh, started at the same age doing a political blog, which he still does um, uh, and has tens of thousands, has had from the age of nine, tens of thousands of readers who receive it by email. Um, it's just a reminder of, of uh, uh, the remarkable explosion in the ability to disseminate information that's happened over the course of our lifetimes. Do you think that there's a way that that um, gets somehow filtered by quality? I mean, we have this explosion that makes it almost impossible to figure out 
forget what's real and what's not real, but even, you know, to get to the good stuff, because um, there's just so much. Well, you have to define quality. I mean, this is an argument I've been having with journalists for uh, 15 years as we move from print to digital. You know, there's all this uh, talk about clickbait, et cetera, and many journalists, many journalists prior to the advent of the internet thought of themselves as artists. You know, I create beautiful art and it's somebody else's job to get somebody to read it. Um, the internet has changed all of that. And, and some people have resisted it and said, no, I, I don't want to do clickbait. I don't, I, I don't want to write something that people want to read. <laughs> I don't understand how you can do that or how you think of that. If, if, if thousands of people choose to share your article on Facebook, that's a quality marker of some sort. Now, it's not a guarantee that what you've written is accurate what you've written is well reported, but what you've written has somehow caught their attention. And I think that's the difficulty that we're in right now is um, I, 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 don't, I don't see how you can be a journalist and not care about expanding your audience. Right. right? I, I mean, you want a larger audience, but, but the problem we have at the moment is that what the algorithms of the social media companies have told us uh, have taught us is that what gains larger audience is not necessarily what you and I would consider quality journalism that's fact-checked, you know, that's that's double-sourced, that uh, makes an effort to tell both sides of the stories, that corrects errors when they are found. None of those things seem to help you build an audience. Um, and frequently the audience can be built by outrageous headlines that have that bear no relationship to the truth. I think that's the problem that has to be solved in journalism. We've created a perfect market where people get exactly the information they want. Um, and it's difficult uh, uh, for those of us who believe in freedom to somehow be against the notion that people can read what they want to read. Uh, but somehow we have to train people to be better consumers, to understand what they what is reliable, what they can count on and what they can't. And we're failing that war right now, miserably, failing it, it miserably. I, I just read a, uh, this is a bit of a diversion, but, but, uh, but you, the name of your podcast is But I Digress. So But I Digress. Um, I, I was reading some uh, store, digital uh, stories for a, a, a journalism contest, and one of them was an extraordinary story about a, a multi-level marketing scheme uh, that was selling dirt, literally <laughs> selling, successfully selling dirt, you know, with testimonials about, oh, this is so wonderful. It's changed my, you know, it's cured my athlete's foot. It's, it's stopping my Alzheimer's. This is like the, you drink it, you put it on your face, you know, it's just... <laughs> extraordinary and and hundreds of thousands of people fell for it so there there's something has to happen to teach society how to be better consumers of information you know how to do it because you're part of this profession i know how to do it but a lot of people clearly don't uh and we're you don't want to take away their freedom uh, but you do want them to learn what's real and what isn't and what's truth and what's uh, not truth and, and, and what's fact and what's fiction. Hey, um, you know, getting back to the, the, the point you were making a little while ago about clickbait and, 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 and versus, you know, wanting people to, to read your stuff. Have you ever come across Talking Points Memo? Yeah. 
because uh, they're they seem to have an interesting model, right? Where they don't, and for one thing, well, I think the journalism is incredibly solid. Um, they don't go for egregious clickbait stuff, um, and they've got this sort of three tier model where you could not be a registered member or subscriber at all, and you get inundated with ads, or you become a subscriber and you get less ads, or you are like a, you know, high level subscriber and you get no ads. Um, and, but the interesting thing to me is that, um, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a functioning outfit, but they're, cont they're, they're content, I think, to not scale, right? I mean, they're, 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 there's no way to scale that, it seems to me, but maybe it doesn't need to. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, to me, the lesson is the advertising model. The advertising model worked when media companies had uh, a, uh, a monopoly on information. You know, if, if you ran the one of the Chicago papers, you could pretty much, you were pretty much the only, I, I, I this is a sign of my age, but I think of, of Leave it to Beaver. And if you remember, leave it to Beaver, Ward Cleaver, the only time you saw him was sitting at the breakfast table reading the morning newspaper. And you realized that the only way to get to the Cleaver family with a, with a marketing message was through that morning newspaper because Ward seemed to sit there all day long reading the newspaper and didn't do anything else. As soon as that newspaper was presented with a computer, I mean, uh, replaced with a computer, hundreds of people could get there in lots of different ways. And so the game became radically different and and the advertising model broke down most of those advertisers really don't care about the quality of information that they're associated with they just care about the customer that they're reaching and uh, and so i do think there's that the, uh, talking points memo and fortune and many others have said we have to have a direct relationship with our uh, consumers if we're going to survive and so paywalls have proliferated and uh, it, it's not a very uh, it's not very convenient for the consumers of information, but I think it's necessary for survival. If you want to do provide quality information, you need to uh, have a group of passionate readers or watchers who are willing to pay for what they're getting. Yeah, and the, by the way, not 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 to toot your horn, but that's something that I know that the Wall Street Journal uh, did from, from the very beginning of the internet. To at the time, yeah. my frustration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It I was. was I'll, I'll plead guilty to being information uh, needs to be free. Uh, guild at the time, but I, I resigned that. Yeah, but, you, uh, you, you, you know, kudos to the Wall Street Journal for making the right decision in the 1990s when every other, virtually every other media outlet made the wrong decision, and now is desperately trying to backtrack. Yeah. Well. We've reached the end of our uh, time together, but I, I really want to thank you so much for, for doing this. It's been a really interesting digression and uh, I hope that uh, the people- Great fun, enjoyed great it. fun. And I hope it works for you. I think you'll, you will, you know, after this goes live, you'll be, uh, uh, you'll be up there with Joe Rogan, you know, you'll- I think that if you do your, your part, that I'm bound to succeed. <laughs> well, good luck. I'm Michael Hickens, and you've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. 
If you want to know more about me, please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.